Hey everyone, and welcome back to episode 2 of season 2 of the Performance Nutrition Files podcast. I know, again, I say this every week, but I was absolutely delighted to welcome Lauren Bannock onto the podcast this week. Lauren and I go back maybe 6 or 7 years now, and uh, it was just really neat to hear him on the other side of the microphone and share some of his uh, experience, kind of an extensive kind of breakdown of his background and his journey to today. Um, and I'm sure you'll agree there's a ton of insights and something that everyone, uh, whether young or old in this field, will be able to take from. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Performance Nutrition Files podcast. I know I say this every week, but I'm super excited about today's guest. Uh, this is an individual who has you know, been hugely impactful in my kind of experience and career today, uh, has always been willing to help a lending hand, um, you know, kind of sh- shoot me straight with, with some good advice and guidance, and you know, has obviously done a lot for this field. So really excited to be joined today by uh, Dr. Laurent Bannock. Laurent, how are we? I am very well, thank you, mate. It's I don't actually do that many podcasts insofar as appear on the other side. <laughs> it's such a weird experience. Uh, I'm like I, I was tempted to introduce my own podcast just there, which you've been on and had a brilliant chat with. Um, I just want to thank you for what you just said. Um, it's very nice to to hear that. But I, I can tell you, anyone who or I'd like to think anyone who's involved um, in training and educating people, I know you've had guests and will have guests that are involved in educating people in, in some format. It's, it's, it's seeing the impact of your work, uh, particularly the human side of things, like in your case and many other students and our graduates that I've had. It, you know, yeah, you do these things, um, on one hand, because it's part of your your job, your career, it's how you earn a living. But most of us are in these types of fields, whether it's an educator, researcher, uh, or a practitioner, which I'm all of those, because I love it. Um, but when I see when I see people like yourself, and I remember when you started, and I remember, you know, when I first interacted with you, and to see, you know your journey and and everyone else's it, it i have to say it really gives me a lot of pleasure and now i'm on your podcast so how cool is that yeah well i i appreciate it and again i'm i'm very thankful for your kind of help and guidance um but i guess for anyone who doesn't know who you are which i don't think would be the case if they're listening to this if you could just give a kind of brief overview and for your background and education experiences uh but let's, let's try to keep it brief I, I was going to say, I mean, a brief background. Um, so look, I, I, I've been working in 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 one format or another, in one persona or another, in one one sort of how I would title myself in form or another for nearly thirty years. Um, started life a long time ago, essentially as a personal trainer. A lot of people don't know that. I mean, I need to actually spend some time reflecting a bit more on that and maybe telling my story um because it's quite unique because when i started you know even as a personal trainer um back then in the 90s early 90s right at the beginning of the 90s 
um, dare I say it, some of the listeners may not even been born then. Um, but, you know, even then personal training was pretty new, particularly in the UK where I was uh, living at the time. And things like sports nutrition was really didn't exist, at least not, not how we know it. There was no such things as podcasts, social media. It was very difficult to find people to influence you, mentor you, other than those in your very close networks. Uh, so things took a bit longer back then, which is why I'm here 30 years later. You know, and uh, I, I guess the thing I want to point out there, because people do contact me on LinkedIn or whatever, and they say, oh, you know, you've achieved so much. You know, how have you done? I'm like, hang on, it's taken me 30 years. <laughs> I'd like to think. Some of you will get there a lot quicker, like yourself is a fraction of my 30 years. Um, I'm not saying the 30 years of the various experiences hasn't played a role in who I am now and what I am now. And I know we're going to get into that conversation because that those experiences of my own bumpy journey to where I am now has impacted things that I do in private practice, my own uh uh in particular but also um what i'm trying to do in terms of giving back to the field um with my my efforts in the various areas that i that i work is very much influenced by that 30 years experience but as i said i started off as a pt and that was like most pts if not all really was very much that experience of working insane hours um in a gym um getting up at like four in the morning and not getting home till midnight and often being involved in the operation of the gym you know the opening up the closing down before I even work with my clients actually owned my own gym at one point a lot of people don't know that I even had my own gym and uh, that was an interesting experience uh you know those those experiences of working closely with people is something that I, I value to this day because it, it, it taught me a lot about being a practitioner. I don't know if PTs realize how lucky they are to have such a close working relationship with their, their clients that the majority of your more sort of traditional healthcare practitioners, um, nutritionists being part of that, dietitians, doctors, and so on, who will see their, their clients, their, their, their patients, their athletes, if you're in sport and exercise nutrition, for example, um, really quite occasionally or in very rare moments and opportunities, um, even, even specific consultations are still somewhat rare, i.e. once a week, once every two weeks, every three weeks, every six weeks, whereas a PT, I was with my clients every you know, three, four times a week and spending quality hour with them. But those experiences led me very much to learning that diet um, behavior habits were the areas that I had a lot less control outside of those training sessions. So I, I already had developed an interest in nutrition and diet. I myself um, was raised in a, uh, in a household um, that was very much focused on food and culture and behavior. My mother was French. Hence my name. I am technically French. I say technically because I don't speak as French as well as I probably should, but I have a French passport and I carry off the persona pretty well. Um, with the other side being Scottish, of course, um, which is an interesting dynamic there. But 
Um, I've always felt strongly because of my family, how important the quality of food is, the preparation of food and so on. So I guess I had a good intro to, to nutrition and would always discuss that with my, my clients, you know, and the, the many excuses that they would come up with, you know, despite my say two sessions a week with them, they weren't losing weight. The main reason for them wanting to work with me, their body composition wasn't where they wanted it to be. So they would blame it perhaps on the training wasn't working when it was the bottle of wine every night and the desserts and the treats uh, for uh, the other 22 hours of the day that I had no control of over the uh, five or six days of the week that I wasn't seeing. So as I mentioned, that already created an interest in, in nutrition, but it took me a long time to get to where I'm at with nutrition. I I got more sort of more interested in in more serious sport activities as opposed to just general population issues as a PT and, and transition my own career into being an SNC coach. Um, but very early on in my life, but in terms of trying to identify who I was and what I wanted to do and and the types of people I wanted to impact. Um, and dabbled at that time with things like alternative medicine and all those sorts of things, which at the time seemed very, you know, really well, uh, really well put together alternatives to what I saw as being a problematic approach to healthcare, that sort of thing. Um, and uh, that interest was highlighted, for example, my mother who died now nearly 10 years ago was had a, a series of health issues through cancer and various other things. So I had a personal interest in, in that alternative way of doing things as did so many of my, my clients. Um, but, you know, when I think about what I know now relative to what I thought then, of course, I didn't understand things like evidence-based practice or, uh, you know, uh, what, what constituted as quality evidence or quality training programs and, and so on and so forth. So those, those experiences in my life are very much what I put down sort of rocky phases of life, just, you know, a young guy trying to, trying to get into what I do and um, pay my bills and live my life and develop a career. But, but after about sort of 10 years of being a PT and experimenting around, I did pretty much settle onto a much more, uh, serious path, as I say, and got more into being sort of an SNC coach type of practice. That led me over to the States, where I lived a bit like yourself, um, in a completely different environment than I was used to growing up in the UK or between France and the UK. And um, then I was uh, more interested in in sports science, exercise science, so SNC. And um, got very much into the NSCA uh, activities and the conferences and ISSN conferences, all sorts of stuff that was going on at the time, and worked with a lot of uh, a lot of different types of, of clients, but still very much one-to-one -one combining um, sort of training and, and nutrition and so on. Realizing that my own educational background was far from where I wanted to be at that point, I started to. Um, go beyond what I'd started with, which was things like personal training courses and um, very basic nutrition type courses and other alternative health stuff, which, uh, as I said, I was interested in back in the day and decided to enroll um, into a master's degree uh, in nutrition, which I did, 
and then um, found myself segueing from that into another master's in exercise science, which I did at California University, Pennsylvania. Uh, and then I would say that's really when I started to get much more serious about my career, my educational background. At that point, I was being surrounded by a lot more uh, serious professionals, educated people. Like I say, when I started, there was very little to influence you, mentor you, you just winged it so to speak by the time I had got my master's degrees and had a lot more experience as a professional uh, S&C for example in the states I had met at that time lots more academics and people with masters and PhDs and so on and I decided okay that's what I want to be what I want to be doing but I'd also started to find myself less interested in general population stuff I was as you would have seen for yourself um, in parts of the US, in the southwest of the US in particular, New Mexico, Colorado, and Texas, like yourself for a bit, where obesity was a massive issue, just very alien approaches to food, attitudes to food and culture and, and so on, which can be a problem, of course, in, in the states or parts of the states. Um, and I found that hard to work with or hard to influence or impact those people. So I decided that I wanted to work more with athletes. I started to get involved in those opportunities and started educating myself more and more, hence my pathway into things like exercise physiology and, and sports nutrition as a, a practitioner. And that pretty much took me to the end of my experiences in the States, where I decided I wanted to come back actually to the UK. This is must be 12, 13 years ago. I, I don't know, I've lost track of time where I came back to London and developed um, or had to redevelop networks and relationships, which is an experience you might have to go through if you ever decide to go back to the UK. It's, a, it's an interesting one after a decade. You know, as we joked offline, even your accent starts to change. I used to be quite posh <laughs> and now I've got sort of a generic accent. But you know, that was interesting because I had that opportunity to press the reset button on myself. I was back in the UK, had a chance to start again. So that's when I started. I, I, I got various gigs working with professional uh, rugby teams. Um, the first team I was with was with London Scottish and rapidly uh, got in with London uh, Broncos and um um, where I met uh, 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 all sorts of people who introduced me to lots of other people and the networking became a powerful thing and uh, found myself with my first proper gig as the nutritionist at London Irish, which I uh, then took on for several years. And then uh, uh, that, it, that exposure exploded everything for me in two ways. One... I started to pick up lots of athletes left, right, and centre. I was working with boxers like Danny Williams, um, worked with him through several uh, Great Britain uh, titles, heavyweight titles, and UFC fighters, and uh, triathletes. I mean, all sorts of stuff. Um, and I loved it. I loved every part of it. And I also loved working in private practice in London with business people and so on. So I had a real eclectic mix of, of people, but I also could see... The, the gaps in my own 
knowledge, particularly as a practitioner, as a nutritionist. So I continued my education uh, into developing myself as a, as a practitioner. And that's when I got involved with Senna and went through the Senna practitioner, what is now the practitioner registrant pathway as a graduate registrant and then became a registrant. And again, this is this is quite a long time now that, that I've, I've been part of Senna, for example. Uh, very grateful to be part of that community and maybe we can talk about things like the importance of surrounding yourself with a professional community something i definitely didn't have in the early stages of my 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 career and um it's at those times that everything i'm now better known for all exploded i i started putting together uh training courses where i'd invite people to come um to uh, talk to a, a group of, of students, um, um, people like Graham Close and James Morton um, and Stu Phillips and Kev Tipton and people like that. Um, and that, that project grew and grew into what we now see as the Institute of Performance Nutrition and those networks grew and developed and my professional and personal relationships with, with all those experts that we now see on on the programs we do at the IOPN and my own podcast of people who I would say impacted me myself. You know, you know, doing a podcast, you have these amazing chats with people and, and, and it's not, it's not just for the benefit of the listener. I, I selfishly do the podcast for my own benefit because I want to learn from these people and I share that conversation with everyone, but I've been doing that for, for many years now. And that's the same thing with the IOPN program, all those, lecturers we would get on to our our pre-covid talk weekend sessions that you'll remember charles that they were just epic uh learning experiences so i've been you know like an airplane taking off i'm still on that takeoff journey which naturally led me to doing my own doctoral research um but an explosion i guess in in my own practice which we can come back to um in in the areas that i now currently work um so i'll take a breather just for a second there because that's my attempt at a very short intro to my journey but i think it's very interesting though to like you say kind of what you're known for now and everyone sees you know that service level stuff but to hear your whole journey i think sometimes especially young practitioners they come out of the education pathway and they finish school and they expect to kind of land roles and positions kind of similar to what you're in now immediately mm -hmm. off the bat, but listen to how much uh, kind of varying experiences and kind of twists and turns you took to get to that point. So I think, I think it's important for people to hear that uh, this stuff doesn't really happen overnight. Um, but I, I want to lead in actually, as you, as you start talking about it there was the diploma and obviously it kind of started as these kind of taught weekends and events that you were hosting kind of mm. what drove you to develop a full-on postgraduate program you know I know it's taken some different iterations since yeah. probably when I finished it seven six seven years ago but um you know that's quite the task the project itself yeah and again I you know I've not asked and I guess I should, but I don't necessarily know, you know, why people think I did this. So it's nice to talk about this because, you know, I I needed to learn more. Like I'd got this master's in exercise science, master's in nutrition and so on, but 
you know, and it's still a, it's still the case now, which is why we're we're even more motivated and energetic to develop the the programs that we do that bridges that gap between science and practice. What what we're taught, what most people are taught in their their degrees is is of course science focused, um, and I've done that, and most people listening have done that, but but practice is is a really it's a very different thing, you know, and, and the ability to, to engage with an athlete, a client, a patient, the ability to, to even get those athletes, those clients, those patients is very dependent on your setup and your networking and all sorts of things, of course. And sadly, a lot of people will, will get their qualifications, but won't get clients. They won't get uh, opportunities because they weren't taught those other things that are necessary. Um, and, and how could you? It's far more than, say, a two-year master's degree or a one-year concentrated master's degree. You couldn't possibly teach enough in that time. You know, your focus is on developing critical thinking skills, your ability to read, write, interpret, research, conduct, well, develop research proposals, actually do some original research. Like, But, but there is hundreds of hours if not thousands of hours of other things you need to do in order to become a well-developed professional so that was the point was i and my colleagues um and people like scott robinson who's doing incredibly well now uh, you know we he, he was with me right from the beginning when we started this this process and we were all the same we'd all had an education now some people have better educations than others and some people go, oh, well, that university is better. The point, though, is, is there isn't enough. It doesn't matter where you went, there isn't enough. So that's why we pulled together these, this massive, what is now a massive list of all these experts in both science and, and practice, because each and every one of them is a mindful, an absolute, an absolute treasure chest of knowledge. But it was always from the context of, yeah, okay, but, but, but how, you know, like James Morton teaching us about, Exercise biochemistry, for example, just one of the many areas. But in the context of cycling or in the context of, of football, it's very different than just some bland generic exercise biochemistry lesson because it is context-based, which I'm not saying that on purpose because it's one of my was one of my catchphrases, but that is a critical component um, of our training program. And that I, I really want to impress upon the listeners that. If, if all you're going to do is try and tick some box off and go, right, I've got my degree, master's, I'm registered dietitian, registered, you know, nutritionist. And there's a the big difference there between a dietitian and nutritionist, which we can get into in terms of at least clinical training. But you're nowhere near done. Um, it's a, a, as I think I show quite clearly, it's, it's, it's an ongoing process. And I'm still doing courses, by the way. I still do courses. It is a fundamentally necessary part of my own professional journey, my development to be the best that I possibly can in what I do, because science is fluid. But what we learn and need to know to become better practitioners is also fluid. Technology is just going crazy right now. And our need to enhance those technologies, particularly in this weird COVID world that we live where you know, we have whether you like it or not, you're going to have to learn to work in a very socially distanced way, whether that means on Zoom or in very, you know, in team settings, you can't necessarily have the private chats that you want in, in the scenarios that you'd like to have. There's a lot 
there. So anyway, those sessions was about extracting that information that was not necessarily strictly confined to the purposes of achieving a master's degree. So it's student MSCs, PhDs, and people without degrees, but strong S&C backgrounds, for example, this stuff is additive, and that's why we do it. And we don't feel that anyone really does that. So we're happy about that. Yeah, I can, you, well, you can send me the check for this afterwards, but I can plug it a little <laughs> bit from the, from the standpoint of, I had just finished an undergraduate degree and was exposed to, you know, I was working full-time in a very, new environment and I was learning on a diploma at the same time but I had the opportunity to try and immediately apply that in my day-to-day so I would go to work for the majority of the day and then I was able to pick up the education piece of my own time but it was exciting to me because I was joining the dots as I went and that kind of drove, um, you know, my interest in it Uh, and again that's maybe something that I wouldn't have got from a traditional master's degree, because I actually flip-flopped. I did the diploma before I did a master's degree, and I don't think anyone from my master's program listens to this, so I can say I definitely took more from the diploma than my master's degree because it was it was very impactful in what I was doing uh, in the day-to-day and probably filled some of those gaps that a traditional master's program didn't have. Well, that I mean, that that's great to hear, but I think also, Charles, you and I can both in a very unbiased way say it's not about whether it's our diploma or it, it, i don't think it'd be possible to do this to go and attend where it is it's not so you know they all have they all have a purpose. You just need to ask yourself, what is it I'm trying to do with my career? Where am I intending to go? And then maybe position some of these things with a level of priority that will impact you, your career, your clients, your athletes, your patients, whatever it is, actually thought this through. Um, you know, uh, we were talking about this offline a bit. The thing that gets me is, the amount of people that contact me on LinkedIn, for example, asking for work experience or, you know, just pointers on how to, you know, how to, to get a successful career or do the sorts of things that I do, which we can talk about in a minute because we haven't actually got to that part of it yet, um, of my own uh, practice, etc. But, uh, you know, they, a lot of them already had masters or, you know, are registered sports dietitians or, or whatever. And uh, those are absolutely the right credentials whether they get them in the right format or the right order is is another conversation which is unique to every single individual but the ones that i see that tend not to do so well are the ones that just stop trying to improve themselves um and that's why you've done well charles because you're you're very similar to me in that respect that you've just worked incredibly hard and and you will be 10 years 20 years for now and then you know it's it's great to see you getting the credit for it now but the less the listen we're all human beings we all have the same amount of hours and some of us probably get more or less sleep per day particularly with young kids that i've got but you know it it's nothing unique other than just hard work and some good mentoring for sure i think that's 
leads in perfectly to what I wanted to ask you about next. And that's this concept of starting a consultancy or kind of paving your own way, I guess. Uh, and that probably leads mm-hmm. back to some previous points, you know, especially in the UK, um, you know, advertise job opportunities, these kind of team sport roles, uh, whether it's working for an organization or a specific team are pretty few and far between when you consider how many um, you know, educational programs, master's degrees that do uh, exist in the UK. Um, I would love to hear your kind of tips and guidance for kind of paving your own way and starting that, I guess, private practice. And, you know, you mentioned Scott and uh, I, you know, I remember when Scott was with you in the beginning, uh, the IPN, to kind of see what he's doing now and his facility and setup and all the work that he's doing, traveling the world with different individuals. I mean, it's, it's amazing. Um, no, so I, I think that interests a lot of people uh, and is an avenue that many people, you know, maybe even including myself here, it's something I've thought about uh, time and time again, but any kind of best tips and guidance for maybe transitioning into yeah. more of I a, mean, it's, like look, we all, we, we will all come at these things from very unique perspectives um, to include the way in which we interpret and understand words like success, you know, what motivates us. We're all different. You know, some people will strive to establish a practice, a business, so they can make as much money as possible. And they might quantify success as money in the bank or or whatever. Some people, it's for status. You know, they're the practitioner to some famous person or you know, they, they, they work um, with people that are winning medals and, you know, their status is very much about, you know, the, the impact that they have in the areas that they work, which includes being an academic, an expert, you know, how many publications, how many people read it. And so a lot of that's going to dictate how you would want to approach your career, in my opinion. I can only speak with 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 more sort of insight from my own perspectives, my own experiences, I would, I would say with a great deal of confidence that my own, my own career has been probably more unique than most people just because of how long ago I started. But, you know, I've had a very successful private practice, um, particularly in London, which, as you say, people like Scott were at my practice to begin with. And it's so awesome to see people like him being successful now on their own. Um, but also I've worked at the highest level and still do in team sport settings, um, as well with recreational people. But I've done all of these things at the same time. So um, I, I tend, I, I, although I might have had sort of gaps here and there in terms of when they occur in, in a year or a season or whatever, for a very long time now, I've worked with a sports team, private sort of recreational clients, private elite athlete clients. Um, uh, uh, so I wouldn't say that I've, I've sort of tried to get a job. Um, I've, I've always found myself work, Charles. And I think that's something that I find quite sad that I see people sitting there waiting for people to reply to applications or job offers or sitting there going, why are there no jobs? I never, I've never ever applied for a job, never. Every single gig that I've had, I have achieved through either 
uh, uh, what I would simplify as saying knocking on doors. I've made the effort to network, get to know people. Um, you know, like back in the days when I was with like um, the various pro rugby teams that I spent many years working in, all of those were based on introductions, conversations, uh, and then having an impact and impression on these people that they would like to have me involved in working with them, their, their, their athletes. And then obviously in time, you then get a reputation for, for that. Um, uh, and you won't be perfect when you start. So obviously making mistakes, I made plenty of mistakes, trust me. God, have I made a lot of mistakes, but I have managed to learn from them, which is something I've become good at over time. So I make considerably less mistakes now than I ever used to. And that's, that's a podcast in itself, Charles. But the, the, the point there, though, was that I ended up going through getting myself to work, it, setting up my private practice, networking, contacting, you know, um, like sports physios, sports doctors, uh, personal trainers, you name it, absolutely loads of people to develop those networks and those relationships. And then... And then having them, maybe working with them, offering my services to them as individuals and say, look, let me show you what I can do, um, which is a decision you have to make at the time. You know, you might think, oh, I haven't got the time to give stuff away for free, but it's not giving away for free. Or maybe, you know, um, uh, my first season with London Scottish didn't get paid. I just went and did that, I haven't paid. But what I got was experience. What I got was the opportunity to meet with people. I know people have different views on, on these unpaid internships and, and so on. And I would say nowadays it constitutes a great deal of abuse by fairly wealthy sports teams, you know, uh, getting people with, who've, who've bothered to get master's degrees and all that time and pay them nothing or practically nothing is another conversation in itself. But these are the things that I did. I, it, you know, people, if, if they don't know who you are, they're less likely to want to do business with you. And if they don't trust you um, one way or the other, they're not going to allow themselves to, to uh, be damaged by referring you to one of their highly prized clients uh, at the risk of, of the impact that that could have you being not good. So it, it doesn't matter how you look at it, it's going to come down to perception. And for us as practitioners, that's going to be very much based on a number of factors like professional credentials. Yes, is one area, but then, you know, you need those things like keys to get through doors. But you need a lot more than that, as I've already inferred. You've got to be good at what you do. You've got to be very the perception of you as a professional. You've got to be very professional, trustworthy, reliable. The quality of everything you do matches the quality of what your work is, everything from how you present yourself physically, how you present reports, emails. Uh, you've got to work on these. For me, it was everything, even presentations. Um, you know, the quality of slides, the, you know, what your resume actually looks like. You know, everything has to stand out. Um, and you have to engage with people, which is why I did things like podcasts. And maybe you, you do too. And, you know, then you get to the point where you're being headhunted or you're, you know, you're getting those word of mouth referrals. So I know that's a fairly 
generalized statement, but because I've done these things for a long time in the unique context of, of London primarily and where I was at the time, I'm now in Edinburgh, but that's where I was. It came off the back of just doing everything I could to be really, really good at what I do and, and, and being known for getting the results that my clients needed. And that's what they're paying for is results. You need the reputation for being good at what you do, not for how many followers you have on social media or, or whatever. Ultimately, it's, you know, that might get you some attention, but ultimately it's how good are you? And that is not just qualifications. No, I think, I think that's really valuable to hear. Um, like you said, it's some sometimes now maybe frowned upon, you know, kind of putting yourself out there, these different opportunities, maybe having a time period where you're quote unquote giving things away for free or working for free. But, um, you know, even for myself, my, my first year out here, I, I didn't get paid and I was working full time probably more than full-time in that environment, but it led to a full-time position. And without that position, I wouldn't have my current position and so on and so forth. So I guess it, it, it kind of depends. Also, and I understand that it's not possible for everyone to do, you know, everyone's individual. Um, but Charles, what you did, be different. what you did, and I remember talking to you at the time when you were, when you were doing these things is you, you thought it through and you saw the advice of various people, including me, and we, we talked and, and you would have spoken to family and friends and other professionals and experts and so on. But the point is you talked it through. I'm not saying that people should just go out and wing it and do things for free, obviously. But that brings me back to a message that I've tried to highlight in my podcast, for example, is this, is this, is this concept of you can but should you. You need to stop and think about what I'm doing. And this could be career decisions, personal relationships, acquisitions, um, and definitely educational choices. And like you say, you know, do you, don't you work quotes and quotes for free? Because you need to say, well, hang on, what, what am I going to get out of this? What's the potential? What, what's the cost of benefit analysis of this situation? If I'm going to get experience, networks, it's with the right kinds of people, then that has a value. And that value will yield a financial benefit down the road. But if you only ever look at things of, well, I'm not being paid, therefore I'm not going to do it. Sure, if you're, if, you're, if you're just cheap for the wrong reasons, then obviously that's just going to end up going down a terrible path. But you need to look at value. And in my opinion, and I've done this myself many times, is there are alternative ways of acquiring a value out of a relationship? And that can be very much a buddy-buddy, scratch each other's back relationship with other professionals, cross-referral networking. I do this, you do that together. We both get something out of it and together we go onwards and upwards. You just got to think about it. And if you don't know, which frankly most of us don't know, particularly early career, go find people that are more experienced, more successful than yourself and try and try and learn from them. And that's a great thing about your podcast, by the way, Charles, that is you are helping to bridge that, that gap between sort of naivety and experience and all those other things. And um, I know it's James Moorhead's got a book coming, coming out, I think, that's also interviews with, with nutritionists. These, to me, these are, these are, this is like gold dust because they don't teach you this stuff at university. Um, and like I said, there are, there are a lot of people in the wastelands of, you know, unemployment and the terrible frustrations that they have of all that effort to get their 
degrees and lovely bits of paper that are on a wall and titles and so on, but they're not getting the clients because no one talks to them about this stuff. Yeah, certainly very valuable uh, and definitely the kind of driving force behind this. Um, we want to switch gears a little bit. And mm. I know you mentioned kind of being headhunted and being yeah. kind of sought after for these roles. And, you know, mid-July, the uh, Euros uh, kind of finished up and you were fortunate enough to work with uh, Belgium. Um, speak a little bit about that experience, you know, um, how you kind of step it foot into a new environment like that. Obviously, this is a group of professionals that only spend uh, a certain amount of time with each other each year. They're at their respective clubs and they kind of come together and you're kind of a new person, new face in the room. How, how was that experience for you? It's hard. <laughs> Despite my experience, you know, it's not my first tournament. I, in the last World Cup, I was in a similar situation where I was... Um, nutritionist to the Egyptian national men's national football team, uh, which I would draw quite a few comparisons to my current situation working with the Belgian men's national football team is just the, the, the sheer differences that exists from one team to another, whether, whether, I mean, in my case, my experiences in football are with national teams primarily, whereas I worked in club rugby. In fact, now I, I'm a consultant at Edinburgh Rugby. Um, you know, so I've still got my foot into club club sport, which is radically different, you know, uh, 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 than these national teams that we work for. But in both scenarios, um, the cultural difference that exists is, it, you know, is, a, is it's interesting because... What you've got is a bunch of lads, in my case, with the men's national team. These guys all grew up with each other one way or the other. So, yes, they're a team, but they're almost like an, they're just some massive extended family. I mean, a lot of these, like in, with the Belgians, you know, I mean, they are awesome players, incredibly talented, ultra famous, most of them. Well, not most of them, but a lot of them are ultra famous. You know, some of them are arguably the best in the world in their respective roles, and they are paid insane sums of money for, for that, which, which is another thing that impacts this. We're not just talking about successful people. We're talking about people with diverse backgrounds to my own, um, at least with the Egyptians. What I share with the Belgians is I have a French background, so French and Belgian. In fact, my grandfather was Belgian, so I'm not even... They, that, 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 by the way, had nothing to do with my getting this role. Um, that was just a coincidence. But, you know, there's a... I guess there's so much I could talk about on this, um, but one of the biggest challenges that I have as the practitioner in that environment is I have players who come from many different clubs. So it's not just different cultural backgrounds, whatever. they come from different clubs. And those clubs are in many different countries, have many different setups. Each and every club is incredibly unique. You'll know this yourself, having had a number of experiences now. I am still constantly amazed at how differently um, nutrition is approached by... Uh, what I learned from many of the players that, that I'm able to, to, to learn, you know, get, get really into learning about their backgrounds with nutrition at their, their, their clubs. And I'll come back to that in a minute because 
time is a very limited resource, particularly, particularly as a practitioner uh, working with elite athletes. The advantage I have in a national team is I live with these guys literally for each and every camp and tournament. So the Euros was more or less six weeks where I'm literally with them in, in the same you know, building with them, where whether it's at base camp or whether it's the hotels that were out on the aeroplane, we are, you know, we've become very close. So my relationships with my players in a in a in a national team are far closer than the relationships I would normally develop with with clubs. But like I say, you know, they're they're not these players are not following day in and day out my approach to nutrition um and by that i mean they've got their own approaches which we can talk about in a minute but also that of the club of course and one needs to respect that and most of them not all sadly but most of them have have great nutritionists at their at their clubs but may not have the relationships with with their practitioners some some do undoubtedly but, but a lot of them don't for reasons we can discuss in a minute um which are the challenges that you get working in elite sport particularly highly paid elite sports like football where they're not just athletes um they're also brands and um they're, they're a they're a powerful individual in many respects especially when you're on like you know 70 80 90 100 million pounds a year contracts trust me that is not just an employee for the football club they are powerful individuals and you have to navigate that um but it's something I absolutely love and adore. And, um, you know, we get past the language issues, like with the Egyptians, that was very difficult because I don't speak Arabic. Um, and there are many dialects of Arabic. Um, and back then there were additional challenges, um, including Ramadan and all the other things. Whereas bring us to Euros, where you specifically asked, you know, um, my own, my own constraints were the same as the players. We literally lived it together and we all share European backgrounds and, and so on and so forth. But therein lies another issue, and that is that the players are used to very high standards, particularly in the national team setting for the Belgians, for example, where we have like Michelin starred chefs. Yes, literally that level. Uh, and the food is incredible quality, as you would imagine. In fact, it's it's mind blowing just how good the food is. It's a perk in itself to have that, uh, and that's not just at base camp. That you know, we, we we the chefs go to the various hotels. We you know we take over their kitchens, so to speak. Um, we even produce um, usually, well, during the Euros, we were able to produce the food on the aeroplane, for example, our own private plane for that experience which you don't always get but you know we had a lot of control over that but a challenge there for example is they're away from the club and it's an opportunity for them to be with their mates that they've been with for a very long time and it's an opportunity to to have incredible quality food which some of them have at their big big named clubs um, and some of them don't, um, which is, again, an incredible thing to learn when you see just the variety of food provision and, and 
nutritionist provision and, and some of them don't even have nutritionists incredibly charts i mean that's the that's the thing and that takes me back by the way to what i was saying just now about you know the jobs aren't necessarily going to come at you sometimes you have to make the effort to go go check out these these teams and don't assume that they've got nutritionists or, or whatever or in the academy i know we've got lots of graduates at the iopn who've managed to get academy roles and ended up in the first team as a result in completely newly developed roles um so i you know there's a limit to what i can divulge about the euros um but suffice to say the challenge is ultimately this business of uh having a european team like the belgians who love love their food like a lot of europeans do having incredibly high quality provision but a very congested fixture schedule insane amounts of travel sadly i had the same experience during the world cup with the egyptians we, we were amongst the most traveled of all the teams and it's the same with the belgians during during the euros um but as a nutritionist, you need to bridge that gap between the technical requirements of, of what they need to achieve through their diet and the desire of the player to actually want to comply with your recommendations, to fit in with the artistry and outputs that these high-level chefs are capable of doing and somehow making it all work in a situation where... Um, it's incredibly high levels of training um, in these national camps, more so than at the club level, as we're building up to each and every game, um, combined with all the other things that are going on, um, injury rehab, prehab, um, you know, meetings, match analysis statistics, but also all the relationships that are going on between everyone um, is, is quite a jumble, but it's also a pleasure, ultimately, and then steering that to influencing players' eating habits is all part of the mission in these situations, which um, requires many diverse skill sets to include the ability to actually have a conversation with a player and get inside their actual needs and wants and desires, and particularly with megastars, get past what they think is right or just because Ronaldo's doing this and Ronaldo's doing that, maybe I should do this, you know, and who am I? Laurel Bannock. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it's it's an interesting one. And I know you've shared many of these experiences. So it's not just a Euros thing. It's, a, you know, but yeah, when you work with a team of that caliber, it has its unique challenges just by virtue of how high powered the individuals are. Sure, I can uh, I can only imagine and uh, kind of best of luck with that moving forward as I know the World Cup is kind of yeah, on well, the that's horizon what we're all next year. Now. Yeah. So I, I'm conscious of time here. We're closing yeah. in on an hour. Um, but I do want to ask you about your, you know, you mentioned you continued your education process and continue to learn, and you you did do a professional doctorate. Um, yeah. maybe, maybe first part, you could maybe explain to the listener who maybe doesn't know what a professional doctorate is, but then um, kind of speak a little bit about that work. I have the title pulled up here, the uh, Bridging the Science to Evidence-Based Practice Gap in Applied Sport and Exercise Nutrition. And obviously that's a big kind of resounding theme of your diploma uh, and yeah. podcast. And I I think that would kind of be a perfect way to kind of summarize and finish up this podcast you, yeah. episode. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that is an area that 
I developed an interest in by virtue of what we did at the IOPN in its various iterations, as you mentioned before. And many of those people rubbed off on me. The, the organic conversations that occurred with people like Graham Close, Kev Tipton, James Morton, and Steve Phillips and all the others. Uh, there's just so many of them, and I apologize for not mentioning everyone, but naturally, you know, you, 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 sparks start to fly, and you'd be an idiot not to sort of let your, your you know, your, your desires, your motivations uh, ignite as a result of meeting all those incredibly amazing academics. And I, I really didn't feel that I had the capacity to become an academic. I mean, I just wasn't academic. I'm dyslexic and various other bits and bobs and shied away from getting into research. Yes, I did my master, two master's degrees, but I, I hadn't really engaged in any really mega serious research other than what I did for my, you know, for those programs. Uh, and then, you know, you're being confronted by all these professors and, you know, all these people with PhDs and so on. And I, so I didn't, I didn't want to try and be one of them. I didn't want to, you know, try and get into or compete with, if you like, all those incredibly talented academics. Where, as I, as I said, I, I had acquired all this knowledge and all this experience as a practitioner. And as I said, I made a huge amount of mistakes, but I also learned from them. And I didn't just recognize that in myself, I recognized that in almost everyone else that I would have chats with. And, you know, it just seemed to me like, well, hang on, that in itself is something that warrants time and effort. And that has really become my obsession over the years. And that's what led to me, it's a few years ago now, when I started my professional doctorate. And at that time I did, I chose to do you know, a doctor and did I want to do a PhD? I didn't because that was very narrow in its focus, nothing wrong with that, but I didn't want to have a very narrow focus. I wanted to have a much more broad focus that integrated my experiences, but also integrated science, integrated practice, um, looked at quantitative aspects of that, but also the qualitative aspects but also that which influenced my own development as a practitioner. Yes, identifying novel aspects, you know, within practice, within the literature that could be developed further to contribute further to that. Um, but I, I like the idea of being able to do that in a much broader perspective, which a professional doctorate will enable you to do. So. That's why I, I chose to do the prof doc. Um, and that was the most incredible experience of my life. I mean, yes, I wanted to do the doctorate for, the, for many of the same reasons that people want to do a doctorate, but it actually ended up, it wasn't about getting the qualification in the end. It was the experience that I underwent going through that doctorate, much like I imagine you are yourself. It's an incredibly eye-opening experience. It was damn hard. And I'm so grateful to my supervisors um, to include uh, uh, my external advisor, Craig Sale, who, Professor Craig Sale, who, who, uh, who was a major 
had a major uh, impact as a supporter through that process to me. And if you're listening, Craig, thanks again, mate. You were amazing. Um, that journey hasn't ended really, although I got the doctorate a few years ago now, I'm still on that path. Uh, and in fact, I'm, I, I've actually signed up for a PhD this time at Roehampton. I did my prof doc at Middlesex University, but I'm now well into my PhD because I wanted to explore the other side of it now, the, the more academic route, which we haven't got time to get into, but it's still about this gap that exists between science and practice. And that has shaped what we do at the IOPN and my research in, in identifying or critically identifying what that gap is and how it appears to manifest in the context of myself and my practice and, and, in, and in the areas that I work, which we call a, a community of practice, which is that, you know, the nutritionists, the SNC coaches, the personal trainers and so on, that community that also engages with practice, the academics the people that, that, that contribute knowledge that we use to inform our practice. We're all involved, but it, it's a very chaotic environment and there's no real, there's no real organization there. And, and we haven't developed the, the equipment to, to navigate that, that, all that stuff, that noise, that community is still quite disorganized. And that's why, um, I ended up doing the research that I did um, and has influenced what we're doing at the IOPN, like the new version of our diploma. It was sort of the white paper, if you like, behind that and all our current work. And um, we have, you know, my team and I, which includes Professor Kevin Tipton, who's our Director of Science and Research, who somebody I admired greatly over the years as an expert we used to bring in and mentored me and is now my colleague uh, at the Institute. And we're now doing research with our unique uh, angle on, on producing research outputs that are going to impact the profession. In fact, we have a paper, yesterday I was told we had a paper accepted on um, making sense of muscle protein synthesis that I co-authored co with Kev Tipton and Ollie Whittard at uh, King's College. London and uh, that's about to come out and I can't wait for people to see that as an, as an exemplar of the type of work that we're now going to be coming out with and and also uh, we have a, a new um, PhD program we're going to be launching um, as a joint collaboration with another university where we will also be co-funding those PhDs from our own graduates so you have to be a graduate of our program um, and all the other stuff that that we're doing. Um, so look, that's just a little bit of an insight because the point is, is that I'm not done yet, Charles. So, you know, people have to dial back and tune in and, and so on. And maybe we can have this chat again in a couple of years where I'll be talking to Dr. Ashford, of course. Um, um, but I think it's this onwards and upwards, as I always like to say, it's just, you know, you've caught me somewhere down the banister of life and I'm trying to not pick up too many splinters in my butt as I do it. That was awesome. I uh, appreciate kind of all the insights and that work is exciting to hear, you know, kind of tying tying it all back together. You know, again, we, we have a lot of great science and information out there and just kind of bridging that gap ultimately, you know, and uh, it's, it's really great to see. Um, it was great to hear you go into depth. Obviously, I've known you for six, seven, eight years now, and to just kind of 
listen to some of those experiences. I think the listener will take a lot from it. If anyone listening wants to keep up with your work and your various outputs, where is the best places to, to do that? Um, well, I mean, you just have to Google Laurel Bannock. You'll find me easily enough. But um, my I'm, I'm, I'm on and off with social media just because I'm really busy. You know, I... I uh, uh, I don't always have the time. I'm trying to get my head around that particular side of it and do a better job with social media. But uh, um, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn are the areas I tend to work. Laurent Bannock, uh, at Laurent underscore Bannock is the usual way. Um, but I'm pretty easy easy to find. And hopefully, um, you know, some of my outputs, I'm, I'm, some of my upcoming outputs, hopefully are of value to the listeners. Um, you know, and we'll see what happens. Awesome. Well, Lauren, thank you again for your time. And uh, yeah, appreciate it. Oh, it's been an honor, Charles. I, I can't tell you to be on your podcast is like a full circle process. So thank you for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. Of course. Take care.